welcome to the second episode of our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women series. This podcast is focused on data and what Indigenous activists are doing to help humanize that data. At the end of the day, data is a collection of stories, stories about individuals, events, and places, providing a window into the lives of the missing and murdered Indigenous people. Now, when it comes to data gathering, a difference exists between the Indigenous and the Western approach. These approaches can have a vast effect on bringing relatives home. And on this episode, we'll hear from people working to decolonize the data, as well as activists who are using TikTok to create awareness about the crisis and prevent people from being censored. Uh, You'll hear a little bit more about the censorship uh, later on in the podcast, especially how Instagram censored many MMIW activists um, in 2021 on May 5th, which is the National Day of Awareness. So these stories, they determine the percentage of cases that are solved by the authorities, or in most cases not solved. And missing person searches and murder investigations often depend on how well they are tracked and logged by various authority groups. Since 2016, there have been 5,712 reported missing and murdered indigenous people cases. Out of those, only a tiny number, 116, have been opened by the U.S. Department of Justice for investigation. Even when reports are filed, racism still plays a factor in the cases pursued by the authorities. In the early colonial era of the United States, genocide has always been synonymous with gender violence and predatory behavior. In the current Western society that we live in now, Native women are still being dehumanized and their accounts of assault often go unreported. Systemic struggles are amplified by jurisdiction issues between the tribal, state, and federal authorities. And I'll go into this story a little bit more in episode four. It's massively complicated as well, and it definitely needs time to be fully unpacked and to have a whole episode committed to just that topic. It is one of the many reasons why the MMIP crisis is happening and why it hasn't made national news. Now, the voice that you're about to hear belongs to Navajo Nation Council Delegate Amber Crody. She was the first person that I interviewed for this episode, and Delegate Crody spoke about decolonizing data and how the MMIW crisis is affecting the largest reservation in the U.S., And I want to also thank Patrick for setting up this interview. Without Patrick, this would not have happened. So shout out to Patrick. Thank you for making this happen. So I come from Sheep Springs um, here on the Navajo Nation, and I'm a council delegate and I chair the Sexual Assault Prevention Subcommittee um, in the work that we've done advocating on the ground and really speaking to our families. In 2016, we lost Ash and Mike. She was our 12-year-old relative who had just returned home, and while she was playing with her brother was... um, persuaded to go into a stranger's van and unfortunately um, he took her and assaulted her and um, killed her violently and what happened to Ashton just shook the Navajo Nation like to its core so as parents as leadership as community members uh, we all gathered to help support the family in not only looking for Ashlyn 
and um, that raised issues in terms of the active Amber Alert on Navajo Nation and what happens when one of our children go missing and how law enforcement uh, responds and ultimately looks for uh, the child. Uh, what we also had to do is help be part of the search teams. And uh, we did recover Ashlyn the next day. And so her family asked that we continue to use her story as an educational tool, as an awareness tool, and as a way for us to fight for justice here on the Navajo Nation so that the Amber Alert can be fully developed. And also in that same thread, uh, supporting families who are going and healing through um, surviving through their violence and how they need the support when one of their relatives go missing. And so we got together, when I say we, the Missing and Murdered and Their Relatives team, it's a collective of nonprofits, myself as a council delegate with the support of the Navajo Nation Council. We've partnered with um, different universities. Uh, we work with our Indian Health Service Injury Prevention Program. Uh, we have on-the-ground advocates who fundraise uh, to be part of the search efforts, and we continue to like raise awareness and keep not only our law enforcement accountable, tribal leadership, and our federal partners. They have a uh, what's unique about uh, working within Indian country or Native nations is we do have um, jurisdiction issues, but we also are a treaty tribe, and so the federal government has a obligation uh, to keep us safe here on our land. And so that's a uniqueness, but it also is a challenge as then we have to deal with different layers of jurisdiction. And so that's what has got us to this point in terms of uh, the Missing and Murdered Deneb Relatives Collective. And so we've been able to testify in front of the U.S. Uh, Senate Indian Affairs Commission, We've testified at tribal consultations with the Department of Interior, with the U.S. Department of Justice, and we're preparing to speak in front of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So as families speak out and we create the safe space as tribal leadership, my role and responsibility then is to carry their songs and carry their stories of sorrow and up to the federal level so that they can receive um, support here on the ground. So that is the work that we've been doing here on Navajo Nation. It's very survivor-centered, family-focused. But I do want to say there's also the Navajo Nation government is a parallel but separate initiative. And they have are just starting to organize and understand what the families are going through and providing that support. So we've stepped out to not only provide support to our families here on the Navajo Nation, but as a state task force member on the data subcommittee is providing what information we have learned and what are some of the best practices. So recently, uh, this last legislative session with New Mexico, one of Miski Yavitse, who's part of uh, Missing and Murdered Diné Relatives as and a volunteer and founder of Navajo Missing Persons Updates, made a recommendation of creating a missing persons day. And this would be a day where families could come and receive updates and give updates and also 
uh, just create a safe space where they can collectively heal together and um, take care of one another. So that is some of the work that we've seen that we've heard from the families. And then it's been able to scale up to impact federal policies and actions at and at the state level. And we continue to do that work at, at the tribal Navajo Nation level. What data are you seeing um, in the Navajo Nation come up that you'd love to share with the audience? So data, 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 data. Prior to being a delegate, I'm a policy analyst by trade. That's what I, that was, that was what I did. Um, but there is a process and there's teachings within our own teachings on Navajo. So I could only speak to Navajo on terms of this data. We have a process on how to collect, gather, and analyze information that we receive. And it's not data points. Because data points also, where now we're in this black and white world, and we're erased from mainstream approaches on how they collect data, because they don't honor our relations with one another. They don't ask critical questions in terms of how we identify or what what communities we belong to. And other areas that mainstream data may collect is always somehow connected to funding. And when you connect how you collect information for funding, then that means it's the funders wanting to ask a question or, and and then who are these funders and and how are they informed how to work with tribal communities? And and that takes a lot of work because that's, that's decolonizing, that's um, taking apart systems of power, system of structure. And so what we ended up having to do, and like I mentioned, when our FBI said, well, there's no data we just had to turn to to our people and our people's stories and how what they were telling us and their experiences is how we're linking together and weaving through all of these stories to understand their experience when it comes to how their prior relationship with law enforcement before having to make this report afterwards and throughout and and has that has there been closure for them so in the Navajo frame of mind, there's a process to this. And some can say it's a it's in our prayers, it's in our stories. But when we silo this approach, especially during data, you don't get the whole story. And so at first, what we wanted to do, and when we read the um, SBI report, is we wanted to like hold that up and say, look, we found we found them, we found them, and we scrubbed and, and we found them. But what we also knew was there was still families not represented in that report because they never were, were, were part of any existing structure. So our approach is now, and we call it a data institute, now thinking, I, I think I'm going to talk to our elders and and, and rename that because what we want is an entity, a, a collection of individuals to hold those stories as a vessel and to use those stories like th- that's the truth. Like this is like in all of these other movements that we are going to believe what this family is telling us and we're going to believe their experience and we are going to make policy changes and pivot and be responsible in a trauma-informed way so that we can bring 
a sense of connection and closure to these families. So NamUs still does not have all of our missing relatives on that database. We met with them last week with the data with the state task force on the data committee and I had told them we need a follow-up meeting because you don't have all of our relatives on here what they now have said in in their attempt to again I don't know who did this was but their attempt to make sure that their data is correct is they are not putting individuals in their database until they get confirmation from law enforcement now let me pause there because that is important because we just talked about how inconsistent law enforcement is and they have their own database they have the NCIC that only law enforcement can put information in and they have been able since 2018 to put tribal affiliation but now knowing they've paused in including individuals and this is important because we say every minute matters to now know that they're pausing to wait for law enforcement but not knowing you know or or being accountable or or doing the follow up we're we're back <laughs> it's almost like a dysfunction like we're back in the same place waiting for law enforcement to put these individuals into the database because if there's a hit somewhere if they're in the system then someone at least knows they're missing and so now we're working with former law enforcement like native search where they have the technology and working with the private sector to help us i don't know how much more we could rely on our federal partners it's either they're not hearing us they're not believing us and they need to be accountable for that and anybody who deals with data knows they can put a asterisk they could put some type of symbol they could create another you know like we're we're these individuals are pending, you know, law enforcement review. But it, it's just disappointing to know that we're back at the same place. And yet they keep coming to the table saying, we'll partner with you, provide these recommendations. And we're, we're back to where we started. And, and that's why at this point, we can only rely on our families who continue to show up, who continue to motivate us and continue to drive this conversation. So the way we get federal attention and continue with the data is is the family showing up. And there's no denying when you have a grieving mother there trying to find justice for her son and, and continues to show up and says I'm going to keep showing up. And when she shows up, other families show up and then other families show up. And that's what we have to keep doing, but it's exhausting. We need a system that will hear what the families are requesting. And then a system that pivots to provide that rather than the other way around where they want to continue to to make us fit what works for them. And we've demonstrated what they're doing does not work for us. The Navajo Nation was hit by COVID. It was in the news. Um, I wonder if that actually increased the missing and murder indigenous um, women rates um, because of domestic abuse and and just the stress. Have you seen the data go up or stay the same? So we still had missing relatives during COVID. And in the data from the state and national hotlines, there was an increase during COVID. What we also saw were then a limitation on because our first responders were responding to the COVID. And so there was a delay in terms of response uh, to some of these situations. So the families 
who were dealing with missing relatives. At one point, we had a family looking for a missing relative and our local town. So we have what are our small towns surrounding the Navajo Nation. We call them border towns. Uh, there was a town, Gallup, New Mexico, who's on the list with a high percentage of missing individuals. We had a relative missing in Gallup. And at that time during COVID, they closed down the city to outsiders. So if you were coming in from Navajo Nation, you were not allowed to enter the city. And during that time, the family was struggling to meet the curfew hours, not able to move across these imaginary boundaries of Navajo Nation and the city of Gallup to look for their relatives. So it certainly increased a lot of stress and anxiety. We then had to pivot instead of in-person searching, like rely on technology. And so we had to do a quick turnaround in terms of getting access to drones and getting um, individuals who were trained to use drones and also then being able to support the family as they tried to navigate uh, these systems. And unfortunately, that was a case where the relative was found, but no longer with us. So it definitely has increased in terms of what it has done is we now can see because our system, our our network is better in supporting families, so we definitely see an uptick because more cases are being reported and we're keeping law enforcement accountable. Right, because that's the big issue of it, right? Just keeping law enforcement accountable. That's what I hear from a lot of the other interviews as well. And um, and I'm speaking to the FBI in a few weeks and I spoke to state police in Washington. So I'm trying to like speak and get like as many sides of the story too because it's just so complicated. And there's so many issues that are systemic that are involved. So I hope you could look into what the FBI is deploying out where the attorney general's office is of the federal response is called like this tribal community response plan. And so if I could just say that that's where we have seen where the federal agencies and law enforcement agencies are trying to collaborate and create a system where they can communicate with one another, which, you know, we all had assumed that was already enmeshed in their system because we do have different type of, so like, for example, if there's a, if, if someone is driving under the influence, those law enforcement entities with tribal police, county, state, they have existing agreements and they say there's no boundary when it comes to an individual driving under the influence, meaning if they're driving under the influence and they drive onto Navajo Nation territory, there's agreements where those outside law enforcement can come onto Navajo Nation and continue the pursuit to, to stop this individual. We want that similar process when it comes to how our missing relatives cases are being investigated. We do not want, you know, these imaginary boundaries of jurisdiction to, you know, create, it's just another barrier for the families in terms of where they need to file the case and then who will be investigating the case. So these tribal uh, community response plans right now for Navajo Nation, um, it's still at, you know, the, the law enforcement working and coordinating with one another. And the opposite end, the, you know, missing and murdered and their relatives, we focus on the families and the survivors. And so the challenge here is at some point, this federal uh, tribal community response plan 
needs to have the community involved. They they need to open up and be willing to hear directly from the families and be accountable. And sometimes um, they're very defensive. Uh, we understand lack of funding, lack of officers, but then uh, the response is, okay, how can we collectively work together to create a system that breaks apart these silo effects and really just provide that healing for the family. So if there's barriers when it comes to law enforcement or communication, how can we give a warm handoff to these families for maybe like mental health or other services as they try to navigate the the criminal justice system? And we don't, when I say we, uh, missing and murdered and relatives do not think that is like just a law enforcement issue and do not expect law enforcement to be able to provide those wraparound cares. But what we needed at all this time was law enforcement just to show up and be and be open to engage. And so um, the last six years, that's what we've really worked at is with like trust building, having hard conversations and, and just keep coming back to the table. And that's what we want to continue to do because the families are hurt. The families do not trust the system. And so we're we're having to to continue to have these conversations on what's expected, what where are we at now, but most importantly, what do we need to do to create the system that will help the families and and our federal partners play a part in that. And it's very different. So Navajo Nation also has three different FBI agents offices that work on Navajo Nation and getting data can be a a challenge, but also understanding at what point do FBI get involved. And this has been a challenge because we talked about Amber Alert and that is for children. But what happens when there's a missing relative who's over the age of 18? And so mainstream laws have said uh, individual over the 18 has the right to be missing. Basically, they have a right not to notify their family. They have a right not to notify anyone on their whereabouts. But that conflicts and that is counter to our kinship structure. That is different from the way that Navajos see one another and our duty and obligation to another. So there is not a Navajo teaching that says when you're 18, you're, there's some type of separation from your family. What our teachings say is at every stage of your life, you have a duty and an obligation. And in one of those obligations, and that's why families had stopped reporting their missing loved ones because they historically were, were getting that feedback. Well, they're over 18, um, unless you can provide some type of evidence that a crime has been committed, then you have to wait 48 hours and then you can file a missing persons report. But good luck to you. And that had been conveyed in 2019 when we went out to the families and heard from them and and they told their stories. They told us what their experiences were. And so what we're also pushing back is these mainstream ideas of who should be considered missing, at what point, what type of evidence is needed that there's criminal activity. And also why that's important is because then there's not funds available for these families who are in crisis looking for a loved one unless there's a criminal element to it. That does a disservice to the family members because then they have to investigate on their own. They have to fundraise to continue to search. 
They're trying to learn how to properly, um, you know, what is considered evidence, uh, what type of information do they uh, need to provide. And a lot of information is stored on our phones. And that is one way that some of the families become aware that their um, loved one, their relative is is not communicating through social media, which may have been normal in the past or not answering their phones or communicating. And so we've had to work with our police department, our law enforcement to understand, okay, how do we work with the cell phone providers to get that critical information that's needed in the critical time? And so when we talked about Amber Alert, I know I'm talking about a lot, but this is this is important, especially if you're going to be talking to FBI and other state police. You know, our providers here on Navajo Nation were not even set up to issue out these alerts. Uh, we had to basically petition the FCC to have Apple, the iPhone, have, you know, provide these alerts for for iPhone Apple users. And it wasn't until very recently, uh, maybe within the last um, update, then that uh, community members here on Navajo Nation were able to get that update and then would be able to have access to alerts. And so there are systemic challenges when it comes to how we address our missing persons, the type of public safety that we have here on Native Nations. And again, it all goes back to the our trustee, the federal government, as they have all of these agencies, how are they being proactive and assisting the nation to build up our 911 system, building up our emergency communication through like FirstNet? How are they assisting and building up our law enforcement because they've kept us stagnant in terms of funding for the last decade. And so how how can the nation respond to these challenges when our federal partners are first not acknowledging that it was happening or providing the support and resources that we need? I was just going to ask you, um, what data you're seeing um, in regards to missing people in the Navajo Nation? Because I know the numbers are coming up for men as well, and obviously two spirits, but um, just people who are going missing and also the people who are perpetrating the crime. Great question. So, and this is a different story here on Navajo Nation. And we continue to support, you know, the narrative on non-Native offenders. But what we see on Navajo, because of our size and our geographic location, and just the high number of interpersonal violence that are happening in our communities and with each other, we continue to see that the perpetrators of violence are either someone who is in an intimate relationship, uh, acquaintances, and um, it's very rare to see maybe a stranger uh, being part of this. And so in some of our prevention work and we looked at is we really wanted to not only boost up like self-defense type so people feel safe or that they can defend themselves, but also looking at what are healthy relationships and how do we deal with trauma. And if it's taken us so long and so many generations to start talking about what has happened in our homes and in our communities, how can we be courageous enough to to heal from that pain and to get the support that we need so that we're not in violent situations or codependent situations? And so there's other approaches. Now, this is this is all interconnected with the work that we're doing for um, sexual assault um, prevention, for domestic violence prevention, you know, what we're seeing when our children are removed from home, um, what we're seeing when 
our children are put into the system. And it really goes back to how can we um, acknowledge what has happened, but also create like healing spaces. Because the only resource that we've had in the past, and it's also been like conflated as a Navajo teaching, I think it was just because it was like a survival teaching, was just to forget about it and move on. And for so many generations, that's what families did. They forgot or they tried to forget that they were forcibly removed from their land and taken to Huilde or, or the Long Walk. They tried to forget or didn't talk about the assault, sexual assaults that were happening. They, they didn't want to talk about how their children were taken to boarding school and, you know, the loss that that child felt and the loss that that parent felt. And it's just always, okay, move on, move on. Don't talk about it. Just move on. And so we're, we're now in a situation where we know how trauma stays in our body, in our minds. And, and we could now see how that's manifest into our communities. We're not only reclaiming our relatives who are missing, we're also reclaiming our, our communities and not allowing outsiders to dictate what our communities should look like or how we should heal and to, to help one another. And that also includes our relatives who identify as LGBTQI. And I think in our stories and having these conversations where maybe there was silence in the past, I always say that silence was so deafening because physically it manifested. Physically, individuals were hurt by that. And so that no longer works. And so now we're going to create safe spaces where we can we can learn how to heal, where we can learn to connect with one another, where we can learn to to understand how how this system impacts our community and why we, we're in such dire need for for all of this healing and so our land reflects that our animals reflect that how heavy winds have come in and how the climate um, and the seasons have changed we're now recognizing this and once you know it you can no longer unsee it and so now we have these change agents fierce aunties in our communities that are, are willing to come together and, and activate for our families. And it's it's beautiful to be part of this movement. It's painful, but I also know that I want my children and my grandchildren and the next generations to to live here in their homelands and feel safe. With everyone I spoke with, the same topic of inconsistency came up when dealing with law enforcement, be it in rural or urban areas. Terrain plays a large part in MMIW cases. A cartographer by the name of Anita Lucchesi has been compiling indigenous data into an MMIW database. She's the founder of Silverain Bodies Institute, researching gender and sexual violence against indigenous people. Herself a survivor of domestic and sexual violence and trafficking, Anita and the Institute work with families to reopen mishandled investigations. I spoke to her about the database and also Anita's personal experience of being trafficked by someone close to her. So Sovereign Bodies Institute is a nonprofit research center focused on gender and sexual violence against Indigenous peoples. We launched as kind of the new home for the database in January of 2019. 
the database started as something that I did kind of as a grassroots community member for years. It wasn't funded. It wasn't tied to anything. But as time went on and it grew, we felt like um, it really needed a home and it needed to belong not just to me, but to uh, Indigenous peoples and especially the families. I think one of the powers of the database is that it has so many teachings and so many stories wrapped up in it that anybody who works with the data in a deep way, you learn so much about this issue and about our communities through that process. And it's inspired all sorts of community-based projects in different parts of Indian country to address different facets of this issue. So um, that's really the, the root of why we created SBI. But I think it also goes back to this idea of um, data sovereignty and um, indigenous data sovereignty, us creating our own research for ourselves, but also survivor sovereignty and uh, family sovereignty. That's something that's really important to us that I think kind of sets SBI apart is that most of the people who work at SBI or with SBI are a family member of someone who's missing or murdered or a survivor themselves, or in many cases, both. So it's personal to all of us. And I think that's what makes our work so powerful and how we're able to build relationships with families and communities. There's a lot of statistics out there on violence against Native women. I think all of us have heard the one in three will be raped in her lifetime statistic. And none of us know where that came from, who came up with it, what data they used, who they talked to. It came from the federal government. It's, you know, I don't want to knock that statistic too much, but um, I have an auntie who says, uh, well, I want to talk to the other two because we know that the rate is so much higher than that. And in many cases, in interviews we've done um, with, you know, multiple women of a family, for example, the report mentioned this, um, they felt like, well, it's everybody. It's everybody I know. Every Native woman I know has experienced some kind of violence. So I looked at statistics like that and thought, like, what would it mean for us to create our own statistics, our own data that truly represented our experiences and our voices and our stories? Um, and that's that's kind of how SBI came to be and, and what what our work is really about. And data is so important, right? Because who controls the data controls the storytelling and controls the narrative. I'm just wondering if you've seen anything really surprising in the database that you weren't expecting to find in there. The database surprises me in all sorts of ways and is always growing, not just in number of cases, but also in the kinds of data points we track because we track whatever the community tells us is important. So we're always adding new things. But I think one of the things that surprised me is that there are quite a few cases of elder violence, elders who have been stolen. And in the California report we released last week, I think we said 10% of the victims in California were age 60 and over. I think this issue is often framed as kind of a, a young women's issue, and it is, absolutely. But there's also an issue with violence against our elders that really doesn't get talked about at all. I think the other kind of some of the surprising things, the thing that takes me most aback is when I see a story similar to mine. There's been a few cases like that that have stuck out over the years where I really identified with that person for what they went through, especially in cases where, you know, I was, I was trafficked by a native man that I loved very much. That was my partner. 
and was very troubled. And he had all sorts of trauma and mental health problems stemming from his own family's experience of violence. So when I see cases that are similar to that, that's really what strikes me the most um, is because I see myself in those women. Definitely. And I want to talk to you about your experience as well. And what I find very interesting with your project is that um, your data is focused on community-based mapping. And um, you use a different approach because the indigenous approach is all about relationships, which is really different from the Western forms of research or just like Western understanding of data. And I was wondering if you can talk to that a little bit. Well, I learned a lot of it from our board member, Dr. Desi Rodriguez Lone Bear. She's Northern Cheyenne and just finished her dissertation um, and graduated with her PhD. She actually has two PhDs. She's insane. Her specialty is Indigenous data sovereignty. So I've learned a lot from her about what it means to work with Indigenous data and how to do it in a good way through my conversations with her. And I think what's important to know is that Indigenous people have always been data gatherers, have always been knowledge keepers. That's not something new to us. So what we're doing now is not anything new. And I've my work um, as an academic is kind of reclaiming mapping in a similar way. Um, indigenous people have always been map makers. There's never been a time where we didn't make art that told stories about the land and our relationships to it. And that's fundamentally what a map is. So I think, you know, a lot of people maybe look at our work and see us as like reclaiming colonial technology of data or mapping uh, to help our people. And the reality is we're continuing things that our ancestors always did and modifying them to work for the realities that our people live in now. So when we look at data collection on MMIW, for us, it's been really guided by that knowledge, as well as the ancestral principles of just um, caring for our people as we do this work and um, doing it based on community relationships. A big portion of our data comes from families volunteering information or from social media and kind of the tight networks that Indian country has to raise awareness on this issue. So I would definitely say our relationships make make the work possible and define how we do this. I also wanted to ask you if the database is like a digital like tech database that anybody can log into or if it's more of like an Excel document, like how how is this database structured? Right now it's an Excel document um, and that's how it started. We were really lucky. We got selected as a pro bono client for hybrids, Harvard, Harvard Cyber Law Clinic. They helped us negotiate a pretty, what I think is a really great contract for with a software company to develop something custom for us. Um, and actually what it is, is the same software that a lot of police departments around the country use. Like, you know, when you get pulled over and they have the car in the vehicle or the laptop in the car, it's the same software that's on that laptop. So it's already built to integrate with existing law enforcement data. It just has been customized to meet our needs um, as a community. So they've offered to kind of use the existing structure, but redefine like what fields are captured or there's capacity for us to like kick out monthly reports. So if a tribe wanted to report once a month or even once a week or every day on citizens of their tribe who are missing or murdered, they could get that automatically from our system. 
So I'm excited about the path ahead, but right now it's just a spreadsheet. There are like three databases that are used right now, which I was like, I wonder if the different agencies have a chance to go in and cross cross pollinate, right? Because right now it feels siloed. Yeah, it's definitely very siloed. And that was something that we found in the report that SBI released with the Yurok Tribal Court last week on MMIW in Northern California. We had compared the Federal Missing Persons Database with the National Missing and Exploited Children Database and then the state-level Missing Persons Database. And all of them had at least one that the other didn't have. And frequently, they would have cases where a woman was listed as Native in one database and as white in another. Even when they do have the same case, their information isn't the same. And I'm not entirely sure how that happens, (laughs) but it is an issue. So I think that speaks to one of the benefits of the work that SBI does um, in maintaining our database is that we are able to kind of weed through those bureaucratic errors or bureaucratic cracks that our loved ones are pushed through to better document our loved ones. Right. Because uh, it's almost like, well, do you have somebody appointed to just manage the missing woman's database and cross-reference these things? But that will like melt your brain and that won't let different departments communicate with each other because somebody say like Spokane found something, but that wasn't in, uh, you know, like the Idaho registry or something. And then those two departments can find a way to like fuse the records together. But if each record is in its own silo, then there is like a whole area of information where information is missing. Right. And what's really upsetting is that the tribes don't have an opportunity to correct the information or even access it. So there's, for example, um, you mentioned Spokane. Um, We've gotten data from the Washington State Patrol. There are thousands of Indigenous girls who have gone missing in Washington in the last couple years. And most of them, or a big chunk of them, are from tribes that aren't even in Washington. They're from Montana tribes. And those tribes are not notified. Even like that data had a girl that went missing 80 times in three years. And her tribe was never notified that they have this young person that is clearly at risk of violence or unsafe or unhappy where they are. Wow. Wow. You know, I, uh, I've i been through the Spokane airport and there are a lot of um, human trafficking signs everywhere going, if you are being trafficked or if you see somebody being trafficked, say something. And I travel a lot and there aren't too many airports where you see that at. The levels of trafficking that are happening in the Northwest are large. In in the U.S. to begin with, but in my head, as I think about all of this, I'm just like, how do we create something where the information flows? Is it like a third database that connects everyone, just specific for Native women, and then somebody enters that information to something else? But like, you need a hub because otherwise, everything is gonna fall out. There's so many women working in tech. I, you know, connect with a Harvard um, Women in Tech Club and they can create some kind of like a plugin that goes into the other databases. That would be awesome. I think part of the challenge is that like, it's not just data, it's not just training or new resources. It's also systemic bias in the system, whether it's law enforcement or we see it also in the foster care system. Like that girl that went missing 80 times in three years she had like five or six different case files based on different misspellings of her name because she was being bounced from foster home to foster home and none of them bothered to spell her name right. 
So it's just like, it's not only an issue of data systems that don't work, it's human error from racial bias. You know, I, I was trafficked in Spokane. I know exactly why they have all those signs in the airport. And it's because it's known for being a hub for that. Like I was solicited by police officers. I was harassed by police officers. When I left my trafficker, his department of corrections officer called me and begged me to go back to him because he knew I was his source of financial stability. So it's not just that the system isn't designed to gather the information and get it to where it needs to go. It's also that like, no matter how, like how great of a data collection system we design, no matter how many trainings we do, it doesn't matter if the people there don't actually implement the trainings and those systems in their day-to-day job. And right now they're just not doing that because of bias. I also wanted to ask you if you're comfortable talking about your experience when you were trafficked. I want to know if that's okay to bring up, you know, or if it's, it's triggering or, you know, just, just want to be sensitive. Yeah, I'm pretty public. Like I don't share his name or like details, but I have shared about my experience before. So that's fine. Um, I was in my mid-20s. I think there's a lot of stereotypes out there on trafficking and my story is proof that a lot of them are wrong. I think when people hear trafficking, they think of like people being kidnapped from a Walmart parking lot and opiate drips and trailers and things like that. And none of that happened to me. And I think there's stereotypes about who this happens to, that it's predominantly people who already are, you know, using drugs or homeless or come from bad homes. And while all of those things are intersecting issues with trafficking, that wasn't my experience. My experience, I grew up in a loving family. Um, We didn't have substance abuse in the home. We didn't have violence in the home. I did not grow up in poverty. I, I had a pretty idyllic childhood, all things considered. And what happened to me was um, I moved out of state to pursue my master's degree. And I finished all of my coursework and I ended up moving to a city a little ways away from where my university was. I ended up in a relationship with this person. He's a native man. He also was a survivor of horrible violence and trauma that he had gone through with his family and um, including childhood sexual exploitation or survival sex work. And never really recovered from that. And I didn't know that until it was too late. There wasn't like, there wasn't a time where I was like kidnapped or there was never a time when I was on drugs. Like it wasn't anything like that. It was just, you know, I really deeply loved him and we were struggling to survive and struggling to get through. And this is what needed to happen in order for us to get through. And, uh, That's my experience. I wasn't in that life for a long time. Um, I was with him for a little over a year. And then I, my family helped me leave him when I was ready. And I moved to start my life over a few states away. So I never, I think it's important to say that I never reported him. I never pursued any charges against him. And to this day, like, I don't, I don't have a, relationship with him, but I don't wish harm on him. I've seen how much he struggles in life and how much he hurts from the violence that colonialism has done to his family and the violence that sexual violence has had on his family that I don't blame him. I just know that I'm not safe around him. That's the way that I looked at it. And I know people have asked me over the years, well, how come you didn't report or 
Like there's even been people who said that they didn't believe that I was a survivor because I didn't report. And unfortunately, most survivors don't feel safe in reporting. And that was definitely true for me. I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like the system would hold him accountable because they had shown me in other ways that they wouldn't. And in the years that I've spent away from him, he's been arrested for all sorts of things, including armed robbery, strangulation, multiple assault charges, attempted murder, and he's been acquitted of all of those. So, it, you know, it's not a, it's not a system that's trustworthy, especially if you've already been violated by being solicited by law enforcement or, you know, had a Department of Corrections officer ask you to go back to your abuser. So I just never trusted the system to protect me. And I also never wanted to put another Native man behind bars. I didn't feel like that would do anything. If anything, it would piss his family off and make him even more traumatized and angry and volatile. I didn't want him to be punished. I wanted him to have an opportunity to heal. Unfortunately, I think a lot of survivors, especially Native survivors, because we know how much intergenerational trauma is in our communities, a lot of us are in that position And there just isn't a path or an opportunity to say, like, like if there was an option for me to have reported him and say, like, I want him to get help. I want him to be in rehab. I want him to have cultural forms of healing available to him. That wasn't an option. It was press criminal charges or say nothing. So I said nothing. And that's that's kind of my experience in my journey. And that is just so heartbreaking, too, because... This was such a case where, where you're close with someone. So, you know, there are a lot of emotions involved. There's there's love, there's caring. There are all those things. And um, and you just brought up such an amazing point that there is no button. There's no, you know, there's 911 for help, right? But there's not like a 111 if you want to get help for somebody. Yeah. Well, and during this time, like, there was times where I was getting beaten in broad daylight and no one said or did anything. Or um, he also has like stress induced seizures from his trauma. And there was a time where he had a seizure by the side of the road. And like, I'm kneeling with his head in my lap in the sidewalk, trying to flag cars down for help. And no one stopped. No one called 911. Like he was left to die on the sidewalk and I was supposed to just sit there and watch. And so when you have experiences like that, you're taught that you're expendable and invisible. So it definitely does not, there's not a culture of support for victims to come forward. Right. And that's, you know, as we try to change the culture, it's like, how do we establish these things? How do we establish these foundations? How do we find the nonprofits who are doing the work who can help with this? You also brought up that you were, you had your own experiences with the police department when it comes to coming forward as a victim, as a survivor. And you mentioned that they suggested going back to him. You know, would you mind expanding on your experience in that situation? Sure. So when it came time for me to leave, I think it's important to also say that like this kind of relationship, this kind of abuse, it messes with your head so bad and makes it really hard to leave and people end up staying much longer than they want to or than they need to. That And that was true for me. When I left, it wasn't because I valued myself for my life or because I thought I deserved better. I left because I didn't want him to go to prison for killing me. And I, I valued his freedom more than I valued our relationship or my life. And 
the night that I left, like he, um, it was really bad. I had had to call the paramedics for help. He was having kind of a psychotic episode because of his PTSD and um, was like laying in the road, hoping cars would run over him, trying to fight the neighbor's dog, fighting his family, fighting me. Um, I had to bury all the knives in the yard. He was just out of control. And I knew that I wasn't physically strong enough to hold him back from hurting himself or others, including me. So I called the paramedics for help for him because he was also having seizures. And the paramedics came and they strapped him on the gurney and he snapped out of his episode while they were carrying him in the gurney into the ambulance. And he looked at me like he just hated me and was saying he was going to kill me and, and this and that. And I knew that he's such a master manipulator of the system because he's been in it for so long that he like, cause they, the paramedics told me, well, they're going to keep him there for at least 24 to 48 hours, like in the psych ward. And I knew that that wouldn't happen. So as soon as they took him away, I started packing what I could up into a taxi and I left to go to an airport motel to hide out. Cause I couldn't think of a place where like that would be anonymous enough where he couldn't find me. And um, I was thankful to like, at that point, I had no money at all, but I, I called my parents and they moved really quickly to like, you know, pay for the room and pay for the taxi and um, make sure that I was able to get away. And it's probably a good thing I did that because a few hours later, he broke out of the psych ward and ran through the city in his socks with no shoes on in a hospital gown looking for me and came home looking for me like that. And, um, I, uh, and he, you know, begged me to come back and whatever. And, and, um, I stayed in the airport motel for a couple days trying to figure out what I was going to do. And eventually my parents bought a plane ticket and helped me get home. And I'm really lucky that they had those resources to do that because most survivors don't have those things. But at that point, while I was in the motel room, I got a call from, my abuser's department of corrections officer because he was still, even though he was out, um, he was under department of corrections supervision. His DOC officer called me and said like, Hey, I like, he told me that you left. I know that you are a big source of the stability in his life and his ability to like have housing and, and food and that kind of stuff. And I really want to ask you to come back. And, and see if there's a way that you guys can work this out because he's going to end up back in the system if you don't come back. And I just said, I'm not able to come back at this time. I have a family emergency. I need to leave. And I just left it at that. But there was so many times leading up to that where they there was major red flags that they just didn't care about. Like they would come into, they would do house visits randomly one to two times a week. And there was times where, and this was different officers. So it wasn't just one person. There One day, um, and it was a woman officer who came that day, there was a person-sized hole in the wall, and she looked at him and looked at the wall and asked me what happened, and he intervened and said, oh, well, you know, things got out of hand. We Like, there was a tickle fight. Like, people were just being silly, and it got out of hand. And the DOC officer was like, okay, that makes sense. No problem. And so there was, like, glaring evidence that things were not right. And no one intervened. Um, no one ever talked to me separately from him, except when when I left. And that was to ask me to come back. 
It's so interesting that you bring up the fact that, you know, like no one ever talked to me, they talked to him. And, you know, and I wonder how much, you know, the, the patriarchal Western society plays into that. And maybe that's one of the reasons that there's so many women that are missing because the system is set up for people to to not function in it. And, and women's voices are ignored. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast so people could listen to our conversation so they can hear the words from you, from other women, and it can be in their ears and it can be in their spirit and in their mind. And they can have a little bit of like an understanding about it because I think when you read the news on a piece of paper or, you know, on your iPad or on your phone, you're seeing these headlines that are like missing women, missing indigenous women, but there's no connection that's being made that these are people and these people have stories and these people have lives. The humanity is taken away from them, right? Because once you become a statistic, there there is just no humanity left in, in the data. I wanted to try to help add um, a voice, literally, literally a voice through the podcast to all the missing women. Hopefully you can cause you know, some, some updates, but as you say, this is such a huge, huge, complicated topic. You know about this a lot more than I do, but it just seems so complicated because you have um, the federal government that's involved. You have the local state law, but then when it comes to tribal nations, you also have um, uh, just res law. So you have uh, local, local law on the reservation which are not obligated to prosecute, I think, non-natives on the land, if I stand corrected. Am I correct in that? Yeah, they don't have the capacity or the jurisdiction to prosecute non-native offenders. Which is wild because it means that somebody can come onto the uh, reservation and they can cause harm and they won't be held accountable. All of it is just so complicated. And I wonder what you see as a solution for, I guess, for for solving these cases, but also for preventing them. It's like if the federal law is like, okay, my hands are clean. I like, this is on your property. I don't have to deal with it. But if, um, if the local res laws and there aren't enough cops and they can't handle it and they don't have the resources to do a full investigation, uh, the women go through the cracks. So, so what is, is there a solution? You know, how, how can this be prevented? I think we have to build on the strengths of our own people, whether that's tribal police or grassroots community members. I think what's really powerful that we've seen in the MMIW movement is that it's grassroots folks who are doing the work, whether it's actively looking for missing persons or gathering tips in murder investigations or raising awareness or fundraising to support the families. It's it's our grassroots community members who are doing all of that. So we already have people with the skills and the knowledge and the integrity to do the work. They just need to be empowered to do it to the best of their ability, whether that means getting additional training or certification or additional funding, or even just, I think the biggest thing is more institutional authority. Our people have the drive and the will to address this issue come hell or high water. So it's not a matter of 
like community capacity, I think is just a matter of power and making sure that our people, whether it's grassroots folks or tribal law enforcement or tribal courts, have the power to fully protect their people. Right. And also these women having the confidence to speak up and the protection, right? Because if you go back to um, the local police departments or even the the local tribal police, if it's a corrupt department, you don't stand a chance. So who's policing the police? Yeah, I think if law enforcement agencies were to have some kind of community review board where there was safe ways for victims or people who have been um, neglected or abused by law enforcement to come forward with that, I think that could be really powerful. I think states like California that are PL280 states have a really unique opportunity to do that and to do some really creative pilot projects because the tribe has concurrent jurisdiction over the reservation. So what that means is both the tribe and county sheriff have jurisdiction over the reservation and have to work together in partnership. And of course, most of the time they don't because those relationships are broken and marked by all sorts of institutional failures. But the opportunity is there. The platform is there. It's just a matter of building better relationships and better systems of accountability so that tribes can take on more responsibility in addressing the issue. That's really interesting, too. It's like, what systems does one set up in order to do that? And, you know, who who's accountable? It's like the women have to take it into their hands and hold people accountable. Because if nobody cares about us, then then we have to do it ourselves. Well, and that's what we've been doing, not just SBI, but I think the movement as a whole, like one of the things I tell people is that the movement, the first official MMIW march happened in February of 1991. I was born in May 1991. So there's never a time in my life where people haven't been advocating for MMIW. And this movement is so much older than me. And there's so many women who've been doing it so much longer than me that I've learned from. So I think we've really demonstrated like we can put in this work, whether it's as researchers, as law enforcement, as advocates, as social workers, whatever it is, like we've already demonstrated we can do it. We just need to be trusted and empowered to do it. And the database, it stretches across the United States, Canada, and I want to say you're also expanding into Latin America as well. Am I correct on that one? Yeah, the database started out as US and Canada. And then when we launched SBI in 2019, we launched a sister database for uh, Latin America. That's amazing. So with this database, I know that just in July, uh, super recent, the sovereign bodies work together with the Yurok Tribal Court, in, uh, and you've released a progress report on um, a project. And uh, I was wondering if that progress report is connected to the database as well, or if that's that's a separate project. They're kind of two connected but different projects. So the work that we're doing with the Yurok Tribal Court is largely in due, due to the leadership of Judge Abby Abenanti. She is the first Native woman in California to pass the state bar. She is the chief justice of the York Tribal Court and just an all-around matriarch and badass. Abby had this idea for a project on missing and murdered Native women and children throughout Northern California. And the report that came out in July was kind of the, the manifestation of the first year and a half of that project. 
So the intent was to gather as comprehensive as possible data on MMIW, not just cases that occurred in California, but also any cases that occurred against a California Indian woman, regardless of where they lived. So that was the kind of data set that the court wanted to work with. So we built that based on our existing data in the database, but also through additional research and additional work with the community and with families. So the report is kind of a reflection of all of that data collection, as well as a year and a half of providing direct services to families and survivors in the region, doing some deep dives on cases with them. And then we also piloted a needs assessment with families, court staff, survivors, law enforcement, anybody who might have a hand or a stake in this issue to try to get a sense of where they think the gaps are. Because I think part of the problem, not just in California, but everywhere, is that there's so many people involved in this, whether it's law enforcement or people in the foster care system or people at rehab facilities. There's so many people that have their hands kind of tangentially in it and they don't talk to each other and they all have drastically different experiences of the issue and what they think will fix it. So part of this was this report and this project was trying to just figure out, okay, what does, what, what is everybody saying and thinking and how can we like match it up together to create pilot projects that might actually work for our women? And uh, what did you see in this report that just came out? Did, did anything pop out at you that you were surprised to see as well? I think what was striking for us was just how frequent issues of police violence or negligence were coming up. And that's not unique to this area. We've seen it in other places like Montana too, but it was much more common or or the people we talked to were much more ready to share that than they maybe are in other areas. As we started working with families and survivors, almost all of them had stories of, if not something they experienced, something a family member experienced. And there was kind of this widespread pattern of sexual abuse at the hands of county sheriffs. And that was something that, while I had heard stories kind of here and there, I didn't know that it was really that widespread. And so that was really shocking and or disturbing for me, especially as somebody who is a survivor and um, has also had negative experiences with law enforcement out of the area, it was really jarring for me to see it such a pervasive pattern here, even across different generations or across different tribal communities. Right. Because, because it's in the report and it's, and it's there for everyone to see. Yeah. Well, and I think it goes like when this issue comes up, a lot of times people will say, we'll kind of treat it like, Oh, well, it's one bad apple. Not all cops are like that. And it's true, not all cops are like that, but unfortunately the system is designed to allow cops to be like that and to teach them to be like that. And that's what we're seeing from one generation to the next is generations of young law enforcement learning from older generations that that kind of stuff's okay and that there aren't any consequences for it and that everyone's just going to look the other way. And the example that we gave in the report was an officer who used to work for Humboldt County Sheriff's named Kevin Christie, who was stationed to patrol the Hoopa Valley Reservation. And he and his partner would arrest women and girls for things like skipping school or being drunk in public and would take them out to a rural area off the freeway and sexually abuse them. And unfortunately, Those cases were never brought to trial, I think, in large part because the victims of that violence 
never felt safe reporting because you're reporting to your own rapist. But he was tried for molestation and rape of minors, white girls. And those trials, I mean, even though even those poor white girls were treated horribly, they were expected to testify three times in three separate trials. The first trial um, was a mistrial. The second, he was convicted. And then somehow that was overturned. And by the third trial, those poor girls were so traumatized, they couldn't stand the emotional weight of having to testify again. And so he was acquitted on the third time because the victims were so traumatized by the process. That is a justice system that is in cahoots with this officer. That is a justice system that does not care about the trauma of children who have been sexually abused because they care more about the reputation of a law enforcement officer. And that man is not a law enforcement officer anymore, but he is still a member of this community. He's a business owner. He's involved in different local community organizations and never had any consequences, even though his trial for rape was on the front page of the newspaper. So I know I'm venting, but I think it's an example of just how often, even when law enforcement are, like, even when there are attempts to hold them accountable, how difficult it is to actually put it into practice. And repeat offenders don't stop. They just change their ways, you know? So it's like, just because he's not a cop anymore doesn't mean he's not figuring out different ways to reach women and, and terrorize women. And I'm also wondering if the Native girls in the story ever got to testify, if they got to share their voice. I don't think so. He was never, as far as I know, was never held accountable for the violence that he perpetrated while on the job. And I think in large part because the women were afraid to afraid to report, but also there was... There was a woman who did want to report and she went missing to this day, decades later, she still hasn't been found. So that told all the other victims, um, hey, look, what will happen to you if you even try to talk? Right. And we need the system to work with us to have accountability. And I'm wondering, you know, you're, you have a car, um, cartography background as well. So as you're putting together this database, are you seeing large spots where women go missing and is it correlated to other nearby locations or um, if you're seeing any patterns? I think there maybe are some patterns or places where it happens more often than others. But um, what I really try to impress upon people is that there's not a place where this isn't happening. And oftentimes, like, you know, my experience as a survivor is that most people in a city will have no idea that um, Native people who live on the streets have a completely different experience of that city. Or even what we found in the California report that we released in July, we asked the sheriff, do you think there are places that are unsafe for Native women and children? And his response was, no, I think this county is pretty safe. We have good public safety here. Then when we asked women from that county if there were places where they felt unsafe, they said they couldn't name a place where they did feel safe. So it was the exact opposite of the sheriff's experience. So I think it goes to show that even in places where we feel like, well, that doesn't impact my community or I, we don't have that problem here. Until you actually talk to Native women, you may think that way. But the reality is there's no place that's really safe for Native women. There's no place where this issue isn't happening. Right. I've been doing a little bit of research and I've been reading different interviews. And they also say that... Um, 
the missing women are related to, you know, to oil camps and to different mining camps and to different things. I think it's definitely true that extractive industries lead to more violence against Native women. I think there are some extreme cases where, like, the correlation is very clear, where, like, you know, pipeline workers raped and and left this Native woman to die. Yes, that does happen. But I think the bigger issue is that these extractive industries create, like, just like an oil spill, right? When there's an oil spill, the longer you leave it, the harder it is to clean up. And the more it spreads and grows, the harder it is to clean up. The same is true for the social impact of these industries. It becomes kind of like a social version of an oil spill. The longer you leave it, the harder it is to clean up and the more impact it has on the environment. One example of that is the person who trafficked me is actually from a community that has had the oil industry impact their territories decades ago when my when my abuser was a child um, or even before he was born. And his mom lived her life experiencing violence because of what extractive industries did to their community. And then that all of that violence trickled down to him and he was taught that trafficking was normal or that sexual violence was normal because of that. And he moved two states away and 30 years later and did the same thing to me. So I think the issue is that when we have these industries come into our communities and they bring in an influx of trafficking, rape, drugs, gang violence, it creates this intergenerational ripple effect that gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time and becomes almost impossible to clean up if you let it fester. And there's something to be said for intergenerational trauma. It doesn't go away. It gets passed down. And unless you break the cycle, it just keeps going. Yeah. And unfortunately, so many of our people don't have the resources to break the cycle. And it's and the more I think about it, too, is that the people who are com- committing these crimes and this violence, they're trapped in, the, in their own cycles. So it's just people who are suffering, just creating more suffering onto people. There's no psychological help. There's, there's no support. So it just keeps on going. Yeah, I think... Um... The other thing that extractive industries do is they create this kind of culture of lawlessness, not just around missing and murdered women, but abuse of women, drug use, physical altercations. Like there's just so much. And we've seen this historically, even where I live in Northern California, there's been all sorts of resources extraction here. And to this day, um, and for decades and decades, we've been kind of the hub of the marijuana industry. And the illegal marijuana industry has brought all sorts of violence to the community, whether it's taking too much water from the streams or using harmful herbicides and pesticides. It's really wreaked havoc on the land and the environment, but it's also wreaked havoc on women. There's all sorts of stories of women who go to work as trimmers and are sexually harassed when they're working as trimmers. And then at the end of the season, get um, sold into trafficking instead of getting paid. And so there's this kind of general culture of anything goes, the sheriff doesn't care, they're never going to come out here, they're not going to deal with this, or, you know, I saw 50 other people get away with it, so I know I'm going to get away with it too. All of that kind of collides when you live in a culture that teaches you to take. And that's what resources extraction does. It teaches you that anything is for the taking and anything goes. Which goes back to colonialism and data. Right. Like once you own the data and once you create your own 
systems, then you can start to build up power again. Yeah. Well, and I think they've been defining the narrative for so long, especially when it comes to violence against our women. Like I actually, my academic work um, is separate from the database, separate from all of this, but my academic work is on cartography and how it's been a tool of colonialism, especially with regards to kind of like this armchair exploration of our peoples. And we see that with data on violence against women too. So one of the things like, I talk about statistics like the one in three and Muskogee Creek scholar Sarah Deer, who's on our board, has also written about that one in three statistic and kind of how it doesn't represent the realities in our community. I write about it as a form of data terrorism. And what I mean by that is data that functions as a way of terrorizing a population into submission. Data like that is used as a way to terrify our women or girls into behaving in ways the settler state wants. So, for example, they'll say, one in three Native women are raped in their lifetime. So make sure to not dress revealing or don't drink alcohol or don't go to parties or go to college or any of those things. And it becomes ways to police Native women's bodies and behaviors and scare them into submission. And it scares our tribal nations into submission too by saying, um, well, you know, you're one in three women in your community are going to be raped and we have this money to address it, but only if you follow our rules and give us all of your information. And that becomes another way of kind of terrifying our nations into submitting to, or at least live like having to acquiesce to live under colonial occupation. So data like that isn't helpful. It's actually actively harmful. And that's where SBI comes in is by asking, what if we created something different? What if we created data and information that instead of being harmful to our women and to our tribes was actually helpful and empowering and mobilized us towards some kind of healing or justice or safety? You know, I'm wondering um, if you've seen success stories come out of the missing woman's database and maybe saying success stories is not the right term for it. But if you've seen resolutions come out of it and if you've seen the database, you know, close cases or help people figure out what happened to their loved ones. I've seen cases close. I've seen missing persons located. I like, for example, SBI has a survivors leadership council. Lisa Yellowbird Chase is a member of that council and her work is just incredible. She locates missing native people. I've seen her do that and I've seen her work tirelessly at it. And, you know, I think that's a success in some ways. Unfortunately, I don't know any family that feels like they've gotten justice. Even when a case has led to conviction, I think there's a sense of, okay, that part's over with. But justice is such a complicated thing with so many pieces to it that I think holding the perpetrator accountable is just one piece of it. But working to make sure that that doesn't happen to other women and girls is another piece of it that largely hasn't happened, at least from the justice system. I think the biggest successes are just seeing how this movement has grown, seeing women like Lissa go out and do this work and be the boots on the ground, and to see the families and survivors really find their voices and their leadership. Um, I think that, you know, if SBI has had any successes, that's the that's the biggest one, is seeing the families and survivors we work with find their voices. And is there a way to spot trafficking victims in public? I think it's such a hard thing to do like I'm just thinking personally like would I notice somebody being trafficked I don't know what to look for personally and I'm sure a lot of people don't know 
uh, what to look for too. But if you have any advice. I think there's a lot of stereotypes out there about like tattoos or, you know, kind of like outlandish things to look for. Like I have a tattoo, like it's not immediately visible. Um, and even if you saw it, you wouldn't think like, oh, that's a trafficking victim. So I think it's not necessarily things like that. But I think if you see a person, not even necessarily a woman or girl, because our boys are trafficked too. If you see a person who is with another person and doesn't seem to have much power over what's happening. For example, like if you see, a, let's just say a child or a young woman or a young man with another older man, my trafficker was like nine years older than me. If you see somebody like that and that person is visibly stressed or haggard or tired, they don't have access, like they don't have a wallet or money or ID and the other person has all of that or the other person is always speaking for that person or telling them where to go and you can tell by the body language that person is really like the smaller or younger person is really following that the lead um, and the direction of that older person. I think that can be a sign not necessarily of trafficking, sometimes just of like domestic abuse. So there's things like that to look for. I would say also, of course, like if you're, if you're a friend or family member of someone and you see them really pulling away and becoming distant or having their partner have kind of dominate their life and their decision-making and you see that person maybe with suspicious bruises or injuries or things like that, that's also a sign. But I think a lot of traffickers know to create injuries that aren't visible. For example, my trafficker would like do cigarette burns on my legs where people wouldn't see or would like one time he dragged me from a vehicle and like I was walking on the street and he dragged me by my cheek and like you would have no idea that my mouth is pulling up with blood. So there's some stuff that like you just like wouldn't necessarily see. But I think the important thing is to look at the power dynamics in any relationship. And if there's a person that visibly doesn't have a lot of power in that relationship, that's a big red flag. And I'm also wondering if there are resources where people want to help and they want to become involved with, um, say, your organization, or just trying to get resources for someone that they love or themselves you know, I'd love to create a compilation at the end of this um, podcast and also have it as a resources on the page too, where they can look and they can try to find um, some help. Yeah, we actually have an organizing toolkit free for download on our website. It's like 200 pages is giant, but it's narratives from families and survivors, how to guides, worksheets, discussion activity guides, quizzes, Basically, it's kind of a one-stop shop to figure out how your community or how you want to get involved in the MMIW issue, because there's so many different ways to get involved. So we have chapters on data, policy, boots on the ground work, support services, community healing. There's all different ways to get involved and all of it's in there. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. If there are survivors or families of missing and murdered women, girls, or two-spirit people that are in need of services, SBI does offer some support services. So um, reach out to us and we can have a conversation with you and see how we can help. The other resource that I think is just phenomenal is the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. That's a free national helpline 
for anybody who's experienced uh, domestic violence or sexual assault, and it's an indigenous helpline. So if you call, you're going to get culturally sensitive support. I think that's just absolutely amazing. Um, We haven't had that until they launched a few years ago. So if you're in need of help or just someone to talk to about it, SBI is here, Strong Hearts is here. If you need help figuring out how to look for your missing loved one, Lissa's organization, Sonish Scouts, is a great place to start. There are people, there's lots of people on Facebook who are involved in this issue and active voices. And I think reaching out to some of them would be great. Roxanne White is on our Survivors Leadership Council, and she's based in Seattle, and she does amazing work with families um, as an advocate. So there are resources out there. You just got to reach out for help. And if you don't know where to start and it's really overwhelming, come to us at SBI and we'll help you figure it out. That's amazing. It's it's incredible. You're changing lives and you're changing generations. We're trying. <laughs> it's a effort. While Anita's energy is going into the MMIW database, other activists are creating awareness through social platforms, especially on TikTok for reasons we're about to get into with our next interview. Megan Lenhauser is an ally at the University of Dayton who recently published an honors thesis on TikTok and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People movement. On the show, she spoke about how MMIW activists find amplification on TikTok over Instagram. We also delve into the intricacies of social media, free speech, and censorship. When we think of Instagram, we don't normally think of shadow bans, censorship, and limitations on free speech. Yet in 2021, on May 5th, which is the National Day of Awareness of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Relatives, Instagram deleted stories and posts about the crisis and blamed the error on a bug. Now, mind you, this happened both in Canada and in the U.S., so it must have been some bug. Censorship and shadow bans are just a few reasons why activists have been turning to TikTok to get their voices out. And this is ironic since TikTok is a platform owned by ByteDance, which are headquartered in Beijing, China, a place run by a communist regime known for censorship. And the more... MMIWR data and stories get heard, the more the cases get attention, and the less censorship will exist. It's impossible to silence us all, and I'm really glad we're able to have this discussion about censorship and MMIW and social media. Yeah, I think I saw a quote when that happened, and it was kind of highlighting the irony of you're posting about people who have gone missing, and then all of a sudden your posts about that go missing. (laughs) So it was some pretty sad irony there. And I think a lot of times people don't associate, well, you could kind of argue it either way. I think a lot of people don't associate American media with like heavy censorship. And I think it's like a lot of free speech. People often associate it with that, but then it's just a different kind of censorship. And because it's, there is a bit of conversation surrounding like TikTok and how it is a Chinese owned company and how there's, they associate a lot of censorship with, China because they do a lot of censorship in general. Um, So people more so think of it when it comes up in TikTok, but you're absolutely right. It's just a different form of censorship. And because it is a US owned company, people might just not realize it. So they'll maybe be able to write it off and think of it as a fluke. And they'll accept the blanket statement that Instagram put out saying that it was just a bug. But I mean, for the people within the community or the people that are advocating for this, you, you kind of know it's more than that. It's not 
to something that would randomly happen on such an important day. So yeah, I think that oftentimes people might not recognize that the censorship is happening, but for those who are using social media as a method of activism, I think they do face a lot more of the censorship than the average person would realize because if you're being like shadow banned on TikTok, your posts aren't reaching the audience that they could, but then you see another video just going absolutely viral about a totally different topic. Um, There's a lot of frustration that surrounds it. So I think it's something that I found in my research with TikTok advocacy is that there's a lot of loopholes to lots of like buzzwords that are used in advocacy. So for example, I would see a lot of times the word murdered, the E's would be replaced with three. So you could tell that it said missing and murdered, but then in order to not have the videos taken down, they would do that. So it's a bit of a loophole. Um, So I definitely saw that come up a lot, which I thought to be a super, super powerful tool to kind of like fly under the radar of censorship because it's allowing videos to be put out there. And it even if you don't interact with activism videos in your day-to-day, if that pops up on your For You page and you see the word killed with an I having an exclamation point instead of the I or murdered with the threes, you're going to kind of take a second look at it and be like, well, what's this video about? So I think it's also an interesting method to have, like it catches your eye almost. So even if you're not someone that typically engages with activism posts, if anything, you'll give it a second look. Yeah, I'm definitely shadow banned on Instagram and I notice it in the beginning when I first started out and it wasn't so like political and, you know, like I was getting a lot more traffic, but I also don't do anything aesthetic on it. So I know I'm not like giving into the algorithm and I'm like, okay, well, if I went into the algorithm, if I use more reels, I would get more views, but it just doesn't make sense. If I post on TikTok, which I barely even post on TikTok because I just, I don't have time to make content. I can only yes. record and yeah. post, but it's like, it's like a full-time job and with a family oh, and kids, I'm like. Yeah. I found it to be so interesting because essentially for my research, I forced a curation. I, I used the For You page algorithm to, I only interacted with um, the advocacy videos to have it formulate the algorithm to essentially only show me those things. So when I was trying to find videos, like essentially since I was like curating it myself, I would search up like MMIW, MMIW, G2S, MMIP, like no more stolen sisters. I was looking at all these videos with the hashtags and there's millions. I think at the time when I did my research, it was like either two to five, there was many millions of videos posted with the hashtags, but then I would have the videos pop up on my For You page. And a ton of them didn't have any hashtags. So it just makes you think like how many of these videos are not being pushed to people's pages because like the algorithm's not favoring them or there's a larger reason. But if there's millions that are being posted with the hashtags, how many more millions are there that are out there that aren't being posted with the hashtags that unfortunately some people will just never see because they're not being pushed. So it's definitely it's almost like a game that you have to play to try to get the videos posted and have people actually see them. It's very accessible in the way that TikTok is free and you can just press record and post. But like you said, it takes time. If you want to do like a retake, that also takes time. But then some people that do gain more traction on their videos, they they have a ring light or they, they record it on a camera and then they upload it to their phone and they'll add the text on top of it or they'll edit it. And it is free and you can just p- press post. But then there's also 
Um, you see those videos that are a bit higher quality, gaining more traction. And a lot of the time you don't, you don't have the time. You don't have the means to post or to take all the time to have it go into a post. So there is definitely a wide range of not quality. They're all very quality videos because they have a deep message to them, but there is different um, amounts of labor, you could say, that go into making videos. How people can use TikTok as a means of social advocacy? And like, what did you learn from the thesis that people can really do through TikTok that they can't do through other online social networks? Yeah, I would definitely go to say that almost every social movement nowadays has social media presence. So you can log on to Instagram, like you said, and see things about the earthquake, or you can go onto Facebook and see it. And I think TikTok in itself, it's very engaging. So um, you can be regular person and just press post. And then I found it to be a, a much more like, I would say like casual. It's not Although it's curated in the sense that the videos pop up due to a curated feed, I don't think of it as, I guess you could say, pretty or aesthetic as, like you said earlier, like Instagram definitely favors the aesthetics and how things look. And on TikTok, I found that you could just be someone talking about something that they cared about and then pressing post. And then something that I found to be super intriguing about this is that it's so engaging in the sense that there's the duet function and the stitch function. So if someone's already speaking about something, but someone comes across the video that has a larger platform or maybe gets more engagement on their videos, instead of making another video to talk about it and kind of clouding up the space, they can use that stitch function or that duet function. And essentially they don't even have to be saying anything in that video but them stitching it shows it side by side and will gain traction to the video of the person that's already speaking about their relative who went missing. And instead of speaking over people, you can kind of just allow them to speak, but use your platform as a tool to amplify their voice. So that was something that I found to be very unique for TikTok in terms of other social media platforms. It could just be someone who has many thousands of followers and in their stitch they're not even saying anything they're just it's just their face or they're just it's just a black screen saying please watch this video that will give exposure to the people that are speaking about this um, so that's something that i really enjoyed about tiktok activism i know that social media activism can sometimes get a bad rep people will talk about it they'll call it clicktivism or slacktivism um, where they think you're just posting something and going about your day. But I think if you're going to use it as a method of social advocacy, you have to take it beyond just the social media. Sharing things and um, amplifying people's voices is so important. But it's also what you do offline to accompany that, which I think in talking with the creator that I was able to speak to, she does a lot of work offline. So she posts about cases like MMIW and MMIP cases. But in addition to that, she is helping families find their missing family members or giving them the resources to get private investigators. And although that's not something everyone's going to do, I'm not going to be going and finding private investigators for people. But um, I was doing research alongside of this. So I think 
TikTok is a great place to learn a lot and to have a lot of awareness raised. And because mm-hmm. there's that virality, I'm going to say this wrong, the, vi- the virality or the ability to go viral, I think is also very unique because on Instagram or Facebook, you can just lose a post in the feed and sometimes it's chronological. But for TikTok, there's that boost where if you see a video, then it starts to go viral, then people are stitching it or people are duetting it. And then it kind of just keeps popping up when things go viral. And then because it's getting that engagement, it'll start pushing the other videos from that creator's account. So that was something that I found to be also very unique about TikTok. And then in terms of MMIW specifically on TikTok, I really enjoyed learning a lot more about Indigenous culture through watching the videos. Because in addition to people posting about their loved ones going missing or someone in their area, or just posting about people who had gone missing, they would also oftentimes just have bits of their culture included throughout. So whether it be traditional music that was playing in the background, or if people had a practice that they were doing, or um, if they were wearing something, I thought it was a really beautiful way to also in turn, learn about Indigenous culture while also learning about this this topic. I was going to ask you what you also learned doing the content analysis of the MMIW TikToks. I know you ran them through a program and there was like an algorithm. And if you can talk a little bit about um, how, how you did that, that'd be great. Yes. So I, yes, I coded the videos to a bunch of themes and kind of analyzed them with the audio and then the text on the screen and just the video itself. So what I found was that in the codes that I was using, the majority of the videos were posted to raise awareness. So that makes sense. They're advocacy videos. So a lot of it was sharing resources as well. So if someone had posted a video, but then also saying in the caption, so look in my link in my bio, I have a collection of things you can sign or where you can donate to places or where you can link to a Facebook page that has more information about this. Um, So I found that people, it would be more than just the one video. A lot of times people would have extra resources to lead you to. So that was something that I found when doing that content analysis. And then it was also just interesting to see, like I was saying earlier, like how engaging it could be as someone who had kind of like forced that curation, I was seeing a lot of different videos that I wasn't expecting. Like I said, I was just starting to see videos about indigenous culture, if it would be a dance that they were doing, but then the text on the screen would be about the statistic of missing and murdered indigenous women that are out there. So you're seeing this video and it's this beautiful dancing video and you're like appreciating this culture, but then there's that element of the text on the screen is actually raising awareness. So it was very twofold because I was able to learn just a lot more about it, but then also they would be able to raise awareness. So again, there's the people that will post about specific cases and their accounts will be dedicated to updating people about specific cases or sharing information. But then there's also the people, if someone is a traditional like indigenous dancer, if that's their talent, and they are recognizing that they can get a platform from doing that, then they think, okay, well, can I advocate for this using my talent? That was something that I was seeing as well. Also, I know a lot of social movements, as they grow, you kind of have like growing pains that come along with it. If there's 
trends within a movement. I don't want to say a trend because it is people's lives and you're posting about it. But something I had seen was a, tr- a trend, I guess I could say, was going around of people to post their height, to post their weight, to post their eye color, to post identifiers about themselves, essentially to say, in the case that I go missing, this is my identifiers. And at first when I saw it, because I was learning about the movement, I was like, first, it's just very sad that people have to do that. But then as this trend was growing, it was a lot of like younger women posting, some minors, it was people of all ages, but then other people that advocate for this were essentially saying, this is more dangerous than it is helpful. You should not be posting your height, your weight, your identifying features, because that's it's more dangerous than it is helpful. Like share this information with your loved ones, your close ones, anyone that could help. Because unfortunately, someone on TikTok is not going to be able to call the police for you kind of deal. So they were actually encouraging people to take down those videos, focus more on the people that are missing, amplifying that, focusing on those things, because it was also, it felt like it was perpetrating the idea that Indigenous women are inherently victims, which is not true, but saying like, am I next or will I go missing? It almost was perpetuating that. And that is not something that people were wanting to do because Indigenous women are not inherently victims. They should not be victimized. So it was interesting seeing the the rise of that trend and seeing a lot of those videos pop up, but then also seeing people stitching them, duetting them, using that tool to say, don't do this. I would highly encourage you to share this with your loved ones for your own safety. Please do not do this. And maybe if you are going to be using this platform that you have, post about the people that are missing and we can work to hopefully find them. You know, I was going to ask you if you want to talk about anything else that maybe my questions haven't covered as well. Like if you if you want to bring attention to anything. Yes, I had some notes of the things I wanted to cover. Oh, something I did want to talk about was like the true crime of it all. People talking about the cases of people going missing and speculating and treating them as if they weren't actually real people. In doing my research, I was consuming other media alongside TikTok. I was reading things. I was um, watching videos. I was listening to podcasts. But something I had found when I was doing all of this was that especially in like the true crime space, people like to speculate a lot. And they like to say, like, oh, was it this? Could this person have been doing this? And is that why they got in this situation? And I was very put off by it because I was like, these are real people knowing what their intention was to like, you don't know that. Like you do not know that all you you have is the facts. So putting all that extra, extra stuff out there is not going to help the case. It's not going to lead you anywhere. And I just thought it was a bit wrong how people were speaking about that so but the unfortunate thing is not unfortunate but people love true crime and it's a huge huge community of people so there's people on tiktok that will post about true crime cases and those gain a lot of traction because then they kind of lead you on they'll say oh come back for part two and that gets them more engagement with their videos so i would see people posting about people who had gone missing or were murdered but then they have this true crimey odd like music going in the back, like the eerie sound to kind of like set the tone. 
they would talk about it as if it were a story to be told instead of someone's life that they were talking about. And I found it to be very off-putting. And then a lot of Indigenous creators were actually speaking out about the fact that they did not like the tone that people would often be talked about. Like they loved that people were gaining traction and talking about these cases because shedding light on the cases of people who had gone missing or been murdered obviously helps if you're able to get more leads or if more people are seeing that that's always or it's oftentimes helpful. But then if you're going to be speaking about them as if they're some fictional character, then that dehumanizes them. And it is, you're, you're happy that they're talking about it, but then if you're going to be talking about it that way, then you would almost rather that they don't. The TikTok creator that I was able to speak to during my research, she was voicing frustration in the community that she has on TikTok. She, she said for the most part, she has a great community. But if people start to speculate in her comments and she posts about, she just presents the facts. And then she always would say that she would post the videos and speak about the people who had gone missing as if she was just speaking to the family. So she was envisioning it as if it would only be the family members watching it. So having that level of respect and actually speaking about them as the real people that they are and the terrible things that have happened to them. Instead of saying, oh, I wonder what that person was doing to get them here. I thought that was refreshing to hear and to see that people were speaking about these cases and not treating it like it was some fictional people to be spoken about. So yeah, lots of speculating is something that I came across in my research and it clouds up the space. It doesn't help the cases. It just kind of creates more jumble, it jumbles up everything and it kind of takes, strays you away from the actual facts and it doesn't help find the people. It just clouds up everything. So that was something that I came across and wanted to speak on. So yeah, it's, there's a double-edged sword when you do gain traction on TikTok. I found because it's such a casual app, people just feel like they can say anything in the comments. I don't know. I know people can speak behind a screen on all forms of social media but I've noticed even just when I'm on my personal account people will feel comfortable saying anything they'll comment hateful things as if there's no digital footprint like it's it's absolutely crazy so that was something that I saw a lot so when videos would go more viral about indigenous people who had gone missing there would just be terrifying things in the comments that people would say and you just wonder why people feel like they are able to say these things. Engagement is good in the videos when they go viral, but then it opens the door to see a lot of pretty vicious things be spoken about as well. The story of Instagram deleting MMIW posts and other stories on May 5th, 2021 continued to haunt me. I didn't reach out to Instagram since they probably would not discuss censorship. Their explanation after all was that it was simply a bug. I did speak to someone who had their MMIW posts deleted on that particular day. Initially, I interviewed Liz Marin for our next episode. Uh, episode 3 focused on the connection between the extraction industry, banking, and MMIP, and I hope you tune into that one as well. Liz is the program director of Seeding Sovereignty, and it's a collective, and they disrupt colonized spaces through land, body, food, sovereignty work. 
They have a focus on community building and cultural preservation. And Liz and I spoke about the effects of the extraction industry on her native land of Alaska. And uh, she brought up the story of her experience of being censored on National MMIP Awareness Day. And I really wanted to include it so you can hear it. So I already told you about my cousin Tracy and my cousin Linda and their experiences with their intimate partners. I was like, well, I have a platform. I'm going to use it for my family's advantage. And I had posted photographs of my cousins along with their stories and I wasn't getting any likes past three. And I was like, what the heck's going on? This is really unusual, especially for it being a trending hashtag day. So I went and signed into my computer and checked Instagram and my last three posts were gone. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I wonder if my phone isn't connecting right or, you know, I literally thought it was a user error. Then I tried to post it again. And my Instagram app closed, like the glitchy thing. And I'm like, okay, this must be just like, there's too many of us on the internet. We're making the app go down. I'll wait a little bit. So I set an alarm on my phone and I went back to do it again. And my app just, so I hopped on my computer, started checking the hashtags and my computer would not let me search the hashtag MMIW. And that's when I came to realize that I'm not the only one having this issue. So I moved over to Twitter, hopped on Twitter when I had it, and started seeing posts from other folks that their Instagram feeds were not allowing them to even open their app, the same issue I was having. I was in awe in a very bad way because like why would Instagram do that to us and they were like oh well it, it goes against community guidelines that's what I got like three days later in my notifications you know how when you report somebody for posting vulgar things well I got one of those saying that I had a ban and I couldn't post for 72 hours because I had been posting violent things. Well, I was explaining the violence that had happened to my cousin about the blood that was found in their apartment, about the traces of blood and a struggle in the back of their vehicle. I was literally telling all the evidence that had been found that it may have been her intimate partner who had murdered her. So, yeah, it was it was violence, but like the Anchorage Police Department needs to be held accountable. This was something that had they not waited a week and a half to investigate, they may have been able to find actual evidence of her murder. We don't know what happened to her and we may never know what happened to her because she's just another drunk native to them. And apparently to Instagram, we are also more drunk natives. I don't know. I could not believe that Instagram kept us from this day of activism, you know? So it's it's not even just the media ignoring us. It's not people turning a blind eye because it doesn't bother me. It has nothing to do with my life. These tools we're using for our activism are literally being turned against us. So then I just started talking with my friends and organizing and telling them we got to fight back. The censorship is only going to keep us down. It's going to get worse. Like 
I knew what was going on with censorship was bad as far as, you know, the media and whatnot. But I didn't think it was going to go to like social media being a weaponized against us. So I just couldn't couldn't keep quiet about it. I went and told my boss and my boss was like, we'll repost it. (laughs) So I sent them screenshots of what I was going to post because, you know, it does that saved in draft version. So I went ahead and opened up the draft and sent it to my boss who took screenshots and reposted it for us and found out that like it wasn't just me and my little circle because of who I am, but it was like all across the nation and pretty angry. So we talked to The Verge about it. We talked to the Center for Popular Democracy and found out that it was a huge censorship. And then they came out, of course, with their weird apology, which literally meant nothing. And But that makes me worry, like, what's going to happen in a couple of weeks? Should we move it from May 5th? Because did they build it into their algorithm that our stuff gets deleted? You know, it it led me to a lot of questions in what's happening. Because even now, when you try and search that hashtag, not a lot shows up. So it's like, what are we going to do? Like, how do we work around this? Which is what, after a lot of talking and very late nights with my coworkers, my friends and family, it's like, we're just going to keep up the in-person events and start building locally and do it so loud that they don't have a choice but to listen to us. Liz is from Alaska, and you'll hear more of our conversation in episode three. The next person you'll hear from currently resides in Anchorage. Dr. Charlene Akpik Apok is an indigenous researcher. Akpik is the executive director and founder of Data for Indigenous Justice. It's an Alaskan native and woman-led nonprofit, which is home to a database for missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and relatives data. Charlene has served in many spaces as an advocate for indigenous women, indigenous sovereignty, climate justice, and indigenous rights to health and well-being. Charlene is a lifelong learner in both her cultural traditions and decolonizing academia. She earned her BA in American Ethnic Studies with a minor in Gender, Woman, and Sexuality Studies and has an MA in Alaska Native Studies and Rural Development with an emphasis on circumpolar health and is currently pursuing her PhD in Indigenous Studies. So you asked about how Data for Indigenous Justice came about, and I'm so glad you asked because it's one of my favorite things to share, unfortunately, that we had to come about this way. But I love that Data for Indigenous Justice came about as a grassroots and community-led effort. And it came out of a place of love for our families and our people. And so back in, I think, 2018, at the Alaska Federation of Natives, which is the largest tribal gathering in the state of Alaska each year, we had so many families and people who kept saying, hey, this happened to my loved one, this happened to my loved one. And we knew that it was an issue. But again, there wasn't that recognition awareness as much as there is today. And so our families came together and said, let's read the names of our loved ones at this rally. And let's call attention to this issue. And so community organizers came together and they wanted to put the list together only to find that there was no list and there was no data and there wasn't a way to pull it. And so with that, 
they said, well, let's just do it right now, you know, and they started writing down their loved ones' names. And that began the database that became the heartwork of what we do today as our community coming together and saying, no, this is our truth. This is what has happened to us. And we started writing it down. And after that, I have a background in research and they gave me that list and they said, here, you know, you're in research, you take care of it. I was like, oh, okay. You know, it was pretty informal at the time I was actually working as a researcher and I just kept it and kept it safe and stewarded it. And as I saw, you know, cases, I would kind of add to it on the side. And in 2020, as again, like there's been more rising up of indigenous peoples across the nation in the state of Alaska, I saw a real need and an urgent timing for us to be able to put out the information and to equip our people with the information they need to self-determine change on this. And so we founded Data for Indigenous Justice just in 2020. So we're only three years old now, but we, you know, led with the intentionality that our families came and shared their names for a reason, and that was to create change. And so that's kind of the the short story of how we got started, but it really came from the community and our families who carried this work for so long. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. Um, how are you using the database right now, and what have you learned from that database? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. So stewarding that is a really big responsibility, and initially it was to have, and it, and it still is today, is to have a centralized place of information because again, there hasn't been one because of lack of accountability to the state and agencies and law enforcement, et cetera. And so it does continue to be the most accurate database, which I can tell a little bit, tell you a little bit about. And so, and then I'll answer the question about how, how it's used. Our database at Data for Indigenous Justice is more accurate than any of the information that law, even law enforcement has because in our database, for example, we have cases that are often misclassified. So we have cases where it wasn't considered a suspicious homicide or a suspicious situation, or there were cases that are maybe misclassified as suicide that the family believes was homicide, et cetera, et cetera. And those are cases where, again, we walk and live in our truth of our stories, and that data is represented in our database because, again, that's the aspect of decolonizing data that we operate off of a truthful place from our lived experiences. And so those cases, for example, are all in our database, whereas at the state they're classified as something different and not part of um, the missing and murdered Indigenous peoples data that the state has. And then how we're able to use that data, first and foremost, we put out a report in 2021 So in less than a year after we incorporated, you know, we wanted to really make sure that we were sharing out the things that we were learning as we home these cases. When you're so intimately involved with the complexities of each case, you begin to see it becomes very transparent, all of the the data gaps and all the ways that we go missing in data. And so I started to see those patterns and we and we wrote it down and we myself and the board we put out the first MMIWG2S report for Alaska in 2021 that was a, a, a baseline basically and so 
what I tried to do was to high point the ways that we work through different areas from anything from basic demographic data misclassification of cases to jurisdiction as a high point just to, again, kind of just offer something out that we can work off of um, as a baseline. And so that report has still been really pivotal for information that we have here in Alaska. It's been cited in legislation. It's been cited in the governor's proclamation to recognize May 5th as MMIWG Awareness Day. It's been used in local initiatives as well at municipalities. And so again, like so many times in our truth as Indigenous people, it wasn't being recognized. Families weren't being believed. And so with that report, we're able to say, no, this is really happening. And this is a problem in our community, not just the Native community, right? This is a problem of all people and be able to document it. And that's something like that I often tell people, like, this isn't us just like writing down cases that are happening, happening. It is, but in addition to, it's the documentation of this, of our lives and our truth and our stories that wasn't happening before. Because I talked to Anita Lucchesi, Mm -hmm. and she told me about her database. And um, it sounds like your database is also incorporating a lot of the family stories and a lot of the background, like basically giving a persona to each person that's missing. So they're not just like a name. Humanizing the data is such an important part and props to Anita. So I had heard of Anita's work with Sovereign Bodies Institute while she was a student. She still is, and she's finishing her PhD, soon to be Dr. Anita. I remember I had reached out because, again, I had this database that I was stewarding and caring for. And so I reached out to Anita and just asked like lots of questions about what it was like to steward the data, what software is being used, you know, anything from just the functionality to being able to take care of yourself and be well in this work. And so I really uplift her because one, their database, that was the first one in the nation. And secondly, like she really was so open and giving with like, sharing how I could move that forward for us in Alaska. But, you know, their work really led the way for us to be able to do what we're doing here in Alaska. Yes, it's very important work. And, you know, I was going to ask you about it. You know, there are some differences that exist between indigenous data gathering and the Western approach. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, the two and, you know, how they're different, basically. Yeah, so I shared a little bit one, like a very concrete example of how we steward the data and track it and harvest it based on the foundation of believing our stories. And oftentimes we see in victimization, right, there's so much victim blaming, there's so much dismissal and things like that, that even to operate off of the truth of our lives makes a huge difference of how that work is carried out. And so first and foremost, we operate off of the truth and from our lived experiences. And then that means that we have information that's very different than the state. The other thing about indigenous data keeping, I think, is that in Western colonial ways, right, is that actually this this data and this information from the get-go, even census data, right, I often tell people that's a huge thing that everyone is familiar with. It happens all the time you know, it recurs. And just even going back, the census information was never meant to service. It was meant to exterminate us as Indigenous peoples. 
and the lingering of that and the presence of that today, you know, Urban Indian Health Institute talks about it is data genocide. And that is a continuation of data genocide that we still have to navigate today. And why I'm saying that is Western systems of data weren't meant to serve us. They weren't meant to benefit us. And our data that we keep and that we store has always meant to be for the benefit of the people. The only reason we gather data and information, you know, as Indigenous peoples and researchers continues and has always been to benefit us as a collective. And that is such that is a vast worldview of one trying to extinguish us as in our existence to us working to be a thriving, healthy people. And so the modality of what, of what we operate off of is very different. And like viscerally, like as someone who lives in this world, you cannot disconnect the heart from the mind. As an Indigenous researcher, I can't just only compartmentalize my mind on something. You know, I do this with my full heart, which, you know, when we were checking in at the beginning, that's why the things that I'll share on this podcast are the same things I'm going to share with the U.S. Attorney General's office, you know, because through and through we have to be a whole person and we have to use our heart and our mind the same. Or else it isn't it isn't effective also. Like if I only were to try to operate with just my mind, it wouldn't get us anywhere. It wouldn't be a service to our people. You know, we have to lead with our heart and able to do this. And it also like it isn't sustainable. If I tried to do this without heart, like it would, you know, that's not gonna serve anyone. So I think like the the ways that we keep data and the ways that we steward data and do research and ask the questions that we ask come from that place of connecting the heart and the mind and moving forward from there. My next question is, uh, what are some ways that data can be decolonized? Oh, yeah, it's being decolonized all the time, right? And I think, again, like one of the things that I try when I do workshops or if I have the opportunity is try to make visible the ways that we have always been researchers as Indigenous peoples, we have always been data collectors, we have always done this, right? And so sometimes it just takes a little bit for people to understand that we have always done this and then realize that it's not very different than how we operate even on a daily basis, right? We're always taking in information from around us, sorting it in order to inform the next thing. You know, that's that's really what it is. We're always analyzing and taking in information. And so first is like making sure that it's relatable, like people are equating and seeing themselves within the data. And again, oftentimes in a colonial system, we see information and we can't relate to it and we're not represented in it for very intentional reasons and purposes. And so when we decolonize data, we make sure that our families, communities, tribal members, indigenous peoples can look at this information, see themselves in that. And that's really powerful. How can we do it? Is we do it in lots of different ways. We, you know, we have a lot of folks in our communities who are starting to use these tools. I, sometimes I say, like, we don't have to use, right, the quote about we, um, the colonizer's tools will never dismantle, you know, the colonizer's house. But we don't have to use those tools as said, right? Like we can use Western systems, Western degrees, methods, research, etc. We don't have to use it in the way that it was intended. We can decolonize it and use it <laughs> as a weapon, right? To fight back and to come back for everything that we've that we've 
was taken from us. And so that's something too, like I think that decolonizing data and doing Indigenous research and having Indigenous methodologies and scholarship is incredibly useful. And it doesn't mean that we're complacent in working in a Western colonial system. It means that we're using everything around us, right, to serve our people. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's lots of ways that we decolonize data, that we decolonize research um, to ultimately, again, serve our people. I was going to ask you, what data have you seen in regards to MMIW cases in Alaska? You have this database and you also talk to so many families. What's happening right now in Alaska? Stewarding the data and being within... Right. Well, one of the things is like we say, one of the things we try to do is humanize the data because many state agencies and folks in this in this work who are non-Indigenous don't see the humanity of our family members who have gone missing or murdered. And to work in this work and to steward this database as I do, I do see the full humanity of each and every person. And so the way that that impacts me and the ways that I carry those stories, I feel very viscerally, deeply in my heart. And it's not easy to to see the... 700 plus lines of names that I am fully aware are deeply loved and missed people in our community. Every person in our database I recognize as a person that was full of hopes and dreams, that had a place of belonging in our community, that contributed to the wellness, the vitality of us as Alaska Native and Indigenous people. And every single person then is such a huge loss that we mourn so deeply. And the ways that we know we've lost these people are unfathomably violent and it's, it's awful, you know? And um, so what I see through the data, you know, yes, I have those all in my little Excel's, you know, cells and spreadsheets, but I see loved ones. I see people who are mourned. I see people who their lives, you know, they they live such beautiful lives. And that's another part of this work is we often have to share about the ways that we lost our loved ones as the center in order to be heard. And it hasn't left a lot of room for families to be able to share how their loved ones lived and how important that is as part of this story of being able to also say this is part of the data, this is part of our lived experience, this is our story and our truth, and my loved one lived in this beautiful way. And this is their story life, not just like the story of their death, right? That's another shift that I think needs to be made slowly but surely (laughs) in the stories we tell and as we do this work on a pathway to justice. So it sounds like the database um, has 700 lines. It, does that mean there are more than 700 names in there? Is it like 1,400 or? Yeah, so all, um, it's hard It's hard to, 
I can again. <laughs> every every question you ask me, I answered a long story. <laughs> it's okay. It's a podcast. Long stories are welcomed here. So it's okay. um, we again. I I mentioned how the database came about, and then I was slowly adding to it. And in 2021, when we put out our report, the first Alaska specific report, it's called We Are Calling to You. Even that title, you should ask me about that title. That's a different story. But um, that report is called We Are Calling to You, and it's on our website. And in that report, when I first did, I was, you know, writing the report with my board and the co-authors and who I'll know are all Indigenous women that report was written by all indigenous women and I was doing the final poll to put into that report I did the final poll and it came up as 229 missing and murdered indigenous women and girls here in Alaska and to share that even today kind of still gives me chills because in Alaska we have 229 federally recognized tribes here in the state And that number is so familiar to folks. And that really spoke to me as not, quote, coincidence, right? I think it was very telling that the number that we had in our database at that time represents how many tribes we have here in Alaska. And that it really shows that we are all impacted, that no tribe is missed, that we all are impacted by this issue. And so that was the first report. And then, as I said, we continue to steward the data. And I can give whole presentations on the methodologies of doing that. It's a, it's a little messy, again, because there isn't adequate systems in place to do this well. But we've been adding on to it by means of, I can just briefly say, by either when families come to me and share their stories. We also do Freedom of Information Act requests, FOIA requests. And then... Um, Social media as well is a very powerful tool, actually. And so we have quite mixed methodology of continuing to add to that database. And right now, we, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but at my last glance, we had well over 700. And so between 2021 and it's 2023 now, We went from 229 to over 700. And what does that mean? You know, does that mean that we've had that many cases in that much time? Does that mean, you know, what does that actually mean? And what that means is that we've been, again, documenting that this is happening. And that also means that, yes, we continue to have disproportionate amounts of homicide and missing folks continually. And we are also doing a better job of actually tracking our own people. And that's really what I think those numbers tell us is that there's a huge difference when, again, Indigenous peoples are asking the questions and doing the documenting versus the state or law enforcement. You know, that looks very different. And so some of those cases, I often get a lot of questions about, oh, so, you know, from 2021 to 2023, you had X amount of cases. No, it isn't that clean because, again, the the nuances of the data fields are not that clean. And some people also often ask, oh, okay, like your database is from, one of the issues is digitization of data 
and many agencies don't have the cases digitized from 2000 since before 2009 for example some of them 2013 and so even for FOIA requests I'm only able to pull from you know so far back and we have people and families in our communities who have come to me with names so for example I think of um, two cases an elder came to me many years ago and told me the story of some cases from the 60s that happened in their community and I have those two names in there from the 60s, right, that you probably can't find or do a pull on or there was no media coverage. And so I have those names in there and that's good, but I don't have data consistently from the 60s, right? And so there's lots of complexity and nuances to each of the the data fields and what that, that means. And I try to delineate what that means when I share out the information. And so you can see the report that we put out thus far has quite a bit of information and we've grown a lot even in that short amount of time about what we can say we have and don't have. And I was going to follow up and ask you about the name. How did the name come about? Oh, the title of the report. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So the, you know, we were writing and there was a lot to put in there that we, we couldn't put in there. And there was lots of ways to shape it. Would it be policy focused? Would it be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we wanted the first report to serve our families and our communities first and foremost. And we're like, what, you know, what should we call this? And I try really hard to make sure that this work is healing centered, that it doesn't center violence. And I kind of mentioned that a little bit ago about focusing on the ways that our loved ones lived versus the ways that they died. And that also means in writing and the ways that we talk about this issue, we have to be cognizant of our wording. And so the title of the report was really important. And when I was sitting with our leadership and our board at Data for Indigenous Justice, you know, we sit and we share story about where we're from and um, stories we heard growing up and our cultural stories. And I remember just really hearing all the stories that we were sharing. And it came to me as we are calling to you. And the reason that we put that title in is we are calling to folks to take action, no matter who you are, whether you're are part of the indigenous community or not, but we are calling to you to do something because I truly believe that everyone can be a part of the solution. And as an Inuit person, I'm a Nupiaq, so Inuit are in the circumpolar north, and we have a practice of throat singing where women, two women, would often be paired together as young children, and then they grow up together and One of the practices would be throat singing where you would call and respond back to one another through throat singing. And as we have so many women, femme-identifying people in our communities that have been lost, it really felt like much like the practice of throat singing that was stolen and taken away, our voices, right? We are literally missing as Indigenous women, too. We're missing that other woman that we're supposed to be paired with in life, that we're supposed to be able to call to, that we're supposed to be able to respond to. And so us being able to put out that call 
We want that response back. We want our women back. We want our sisters back. We want our cultural practices that were stolen restored, and we're doing that work today. But it was fitting in many ways of we are calling to you, asking for that response, both in the ways that we know of our traditional practices and stories and on the broader work of seeking justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit folks. And you brought up social media, too. And I was going to ask you how social media helps you with tracking down cases as well. Social media is a really, again, we're being censored because it's powerful, plain and simple. Anytime that we are not being heard or that our voices are diminished or silenced, it is because we are recognized as powerful. <laughs> and so I think like oftentimes, well, I just won't, I won't go down that bunny trail, but media is such a powerful tool because it connects us and it's a way that we are seen and heard. And so in data, it is also a very powerful tool because let's say I have a, you know, someone has a family member, let's, I'll just give an example. There's an auntie and her daughter goes missing, let's say. And what is she going to do first? She's often going to put it on Facebook or social media. Have you seen so-and-so, you know, and maybe it's a simple post. Like sometimes you see people tagging their family member, you know, Hey, Charlene, call me. Your phone isn't ringing. You know, we see that a lot in our small communities, especially, or people say, in a small community, they'll post on Facebook, have someone stop by my, you know, they'll say, have so-and-so stop by my house, because it's such a good way to communicate, especially in our small communities. And so simply, oftentimes, it's the first tool that people pick up and use when someone has gone missing. Likewise, it's a, it's a tool that is frequently used where people say the most about their lives where they're at what they're doing, who they're hanging out with. And so there's vast amount of information out there um, that we could use for this. And we do use. And so at Data for Indigenous Justice, there happens to be missing pages. There's quite a few, actually, even just here in Alaska, where people will post and reshare their loved ones, even if there hasn't been a police report. And that's the important part about saying that, is that oftentimes, again, people will use it first and they'll do it in lieu of, or before they do a, a missing persons report, before they file anything. So in that way, it is also most up to date. And it's coming directly from the family, like it's accurate, right? It's the family identifying themselves versus, again, trying to check the correct boxes in a, in a law enforcement form. Social media plays a huge part in data. So what we often do is... In these pages, we can see ones that are most recent. We can see ones where families haven't chosen for lots of reasons, often mistrust of law enforcement as well, to file a police report. And so, again, we're gathering and seeing more cases there that are even available to be pulled in any data system. And I'll just also just share personally, my cousin was Samantha Koenig, a barista here in Alaska that many Alaskans know was abducted, kidnapped, and murdered from a stand, a barista stand, a coffee shop here in Anchorage. And the community really came together on trying to find her. And a big part of that was on social media is sharing out the flyers, right? And getting that information out. 
And after all of that, there's a group now, it's called Seeking Alaska's Missing. It was a page that was started then because we saw how useful social media was as a tool to find and share information about our loved ones. That page was started and now I think there's over 20,000 members in that page. So you you have a reach of 20,000 people to get eyes and ears on information, which is, again, really powerful. So and not everyone is going to sit there and read, you know, the police department's web page notices. <laughs> They're on Facebook. <laughs> so, again, it's a, it's a hugely powerful tool. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, as I do these podcasts, my voice is starting to like crack because I hear all these stories. And as usual, you know, like I'm not expecting to hear these stories, but everybody has these stories. And uh, I just want to say I'm I'm really sorry for your loss. And also I'm wondering if they ever tracked down whoever did it. Did they find Mm -hmm. the person? Yeah, so that's a highly prolific case, which again, through social media, has a lot of credit to that, but we, she was kidnapped, abducted and murdered. And yes, her killer was found and he was sentenced and he, he ended up committing suicide while imprisoned, but he was sentenced and put in jail and it ended up actually that he was a serial killer. Yeah. That's a, it's a pretty prolific case that a lot of folks are are familiar with, but Samantha was my little cousin and she has a lot of love in our family. And she has a lot of siblings who care so much about her and her parents went above and beyond their, any parent should be called to, to do for a child. And so again, and her story really brought together community here. And I do actually think the, the police department here did an upstanding job um, on that investigation. My final question to you is, what are some ways we can create change to help stop the crisis in America? Because it's such a complex issue. There's really not like one thing we can do. So it's so difficult. But I was like, we can do something. A is create awareness because people don't know this is happening unless you're like indigenous or you follow news or you care. You care, basically. So awareness raising is still really important. Yes, we've come a long way in raising awareness. We've done lots of rallies, marches, data keeping, etc. And sometimes people think that doing a rally doesn't do anything. Well, it does. It does because it raises awareness and it activates people into their power. And so, yes, to all the rallies, the marches, you know, I fully support communities still doing what they need to do to raise awareness because then that translates into an empowered body of people who are going to take that next step into creating solutions, which is the second part of my answer, is that I do believe that everyone needs to be a part of the solution. Does everyone need to have the same answer? No, because that isn't going to work. This is a systemic issue and it requires systemic solutions. And that means people like you on a podcast using what you have available as a platform for this issue. That is the right answer for you because that's the work that you do. It's the skills that you have and you're going to amplify the voices of the people doing work. And I need people with other skills. I need need a bunch of lawyers actually. I needed a law degree yesterday, but we need the policy makers. We need, we need everybody to be doing their part. And so it isn't one answer. It's the answer is that people need to be doing their part with what they have and where they're at. 
And everyone has power in their own way, and they need to be using it in the space that they're in. And our spaces are different. Maybe that's someone who does work at the state. Maybe that is someone in law enforcement. Maybe it is, you know, my neighbor showing up at a talk and educating and learning, and then they can use it in their spaces, right, to be able to speak to the issue and be a good ally. And so the I always invite people in to be a part of the solution. People often wonder what they can do, but I ask them, what can you do? What are your skills? What do you have? Some people have access to funds, you know, get us that hookup with funds, you know, to, to get, to support the indigenous peoples who are leading this effort, right? So it can look like lots of different things. It could look like people who work in policy, helping draft all these resolutions and the bills that we're, we're trying to put forward, you know, so it can look like lots of different things, but there isn't one answer except for that we need everyone to be on board. And, you know, policy without humanizing, that keeps coming up in our conversation. Policy without humanizing is never going to stop violence, and it never has. And so as we continue to share our story, yes, it's hard to hear. Yes, it's hard to know about the things that are happening in our community, but that is where it's going to affect change is by being able to honor stories and truth. And, you know, it's kind of full circle of this conversation because we cannot move forward and have impactful policy that's going to change anything without the humanization of, of the data. You know, we've had folks say policy has never stopped violence in my life. (laughs) And why is that? Right. So yes, it it isn't to diminish the importance of policy. We absolutely need it, but we need it in conjunction and in hand in hand, in tandem with humanization of data and humanization of these real lived experiences. So yeah, I I think there's a lot of solutions. The other thing is I was just on that other call prior to this. You know, I really ask people to be creative with their solutions. We think like we, we have to, use these formulated things or work within the systems that exist. And we know that these systems aren't working. It's evident in a thousand ways. <laughs> so why are we insisting on continuing to use them? Be creative here. You know, like, let's think outside of the box. What if you're telling me like, you can't do this or that that data system is not going to change? Well, then I'm going to ask the next question. What do we need to do then, you know, <laughs> to change it? And someone recently told me, you know, as we're working in the intersection of human trafficking data, we have very, you know, there's lots of overlap there. Like you're asking questions that are going to take an act of Congress to change. I was like, well, then that's what we need. And it doesn't discourage me. (laughs) If the answer is an act of Congress, then come on, Congress. (laughs) So, you know, I think being creative and uh, asking the right questions that get at the solution that isn't to dodge, you know, that's the other thing is I see a lot of folks like they want to ask questions that are easy to answer. And I'm not looking for easy answers, you know, that is unlikely going to get us anywhere. So I think like being creative is really important and being able to think outside of the box on creating solutions too. Thank you for tuning into the show. It's a very difficult effort to find all this knowledge and put it together because so much is out there. And also so much of the knowledge is not out there as well. 
And uh, I really wish that I could have included more interviews and more people, but there's only so much time that I have on the show. Throughout the show, I've been actively trying to figure out how I can help beyond amplifying voices, you know, beyond amplifying the podcast. Like, what more can we all do collectively? And I'm always looking for new ways to innovate and to amplify the MMIW cause. So if you have any ideas, please reach out on Instagram or on TikTok. Send me a DM and uh, I love to brainstorm ways we can create campaigns or um, just help amplify more voices, basically. Um, I think Dr. Akpikapok said it best, right? We all do our best, whatever we can. And I really, really take that to heart. And I hope more people get involved, right? Maybe we can create some national or local TV ads. Maybe we can rent some billboards, lots of ideas. And I love to hear them from you. And uh, if there are any companies that are, you know, that want to come forward and sponsor these initiatives for the people who are doing them, uh, I will gladly connect you to them. And I would love for everything to be, you know, indigenous led. Also hoping maybe we can get some policies enacted as well. You know, how can we shed a light on the missing and murdered indigenous people crisis? And how can we have these cases that are still pending or haven't even been opened? How can we get them to be opened? How can we get the FBI to look into them? Our next episode, episode three, should be out in a few months. Uh, These episodes take a lot of research and a lot of interviews. So please be patient and please share, share, share these episodes with someone who can find them helpful. Have a good day.